He is risen. It is my joy to welcome you to our Easter worship service and all of you who are watching online. So glad you're with us today. Today I'm going to be talking about the fullness of empty. That's right. So if you have your Bible, you can access John 20, first two verses, or if you have your smartphone or device, find it there. You know, here at Moberly, in every church, we strive for excellence in all of our uh, online and printed materials. But sometimes there's, you know, typos, we miss a word or something like that. And some of them can be kind of funny. Actually, I have a collection here of what I call actual church bulletin bloopers. And they made me laugh when I read them. And, you know, the Bible says laughter is a good medicine. So maybe you'll chuckle a little bit too. One church had this in their bulletin. Tonight's sermon topic is what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) That's definitely not our choir. That's for sure. Next Saturday is family hayride and bonfire. Bring your own hot dogs and guns. I think that was a church in Texas, don't you think? One church said, we extend a warm, I'm sure they meant warm, a warm welcome to those joining us today. That's pretty low right there, I tell you. Another one said, our outreach team will be contacting people who are not afflicted with any church. I think they meant affiliated, but I think there are some churches that do a little afflicting. Another one said, the February meeting of the board will be hell in room 104. I've I've attended enough meeting here to know that's not true. (laughs) Tonight is our hymn sing in the park. Bring your blanket and be ready to sin. (laughs) One little G is all they needed. This is one of my favorites. The low self-esteem group will meet tonight at 7 p.m., Please use the back door. (laughs) That's not going to help right there. Missionary Bertha Belch from Africa will speak tonight. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. (laughs) She must be some kind of lady. And finally, a new loudspeaker system has been installed in our church. It was given by Mr. Williams in honor of his wife. So for all husbands, I say no comment. The good news is God never makes a mistake. And it is no mistake that you are here today on this day to hear a word from God. The fullness of empty. That's not a mistake. You know, when we think something is empty, there's a problem. Empty gas tank, you got to fill it up. Empty bank account, you got to put some money in there. And during every political campaign, there are plenty of empty promises But what we're going to see in the life of Jesus, there were three experiences, episodes of emptiness that lead to our fullness. Let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture, just two quick verses, John 21 and 2. Now, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that everyone here and everyone watching on live stream, that they will have a fresh encounter with you, the living Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mary Magdalene, she didn't think Jesus had been raised from the dead. She just thought somebody had taken his body out of the tomb. So she runs back to where Peter and John were. 
They run quickly to the tomb, look in the tomb, see that it's empty. Then they run back to where they were staying. But Mary stays and Mary sees a stranger in the garden and she's thinking it's the gardener and she's weeping. He, and he says, what's wrong? And she says, they've taken the body of our, my Lord and I don't know where he is. If you'll just tell me where he is, I'll carry him back. Wow. That's what love she had to think she was going to carry that corpse with all the spices that had been added. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, and he fell, she fell to his feet because she recognized him as the resurrected, risen Savior. Now, when we talk about empty things, I, I, I don't want to just talk about Easter. We all know the tomb is empty, but I want to go back to the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus. And the first empty thing I want to talk about is an empty manger. And the, the emphasis of that is so Jesus could fill the world with the knowledge of God. Now, I know a lot of you in your nativity sets and things you've seen, you must think of the manger as being some nice uh, wooden box that's filled with hay. But I've been to Israel lots of times and the mangers were all carved out of limestone. So the Bible says that Mary took the infant Jesus, wrapped him tightly in clothes, and I'm sure they had some hay there in the manger, but that's, that's where he was. But today the manger is empty. Now, what's the significance of Jesus being laid in a manger? Because in Luke, when the angels appear to the shepherds three times, the word manger is used. You'll find the babe wrapped in tight cloths, lying in a manger. When they get to Bethlehem, they saw him in a manger. Jesus was probably the only child in that part of the world that was reclining in a, in a feed trough, because that's what it was. A manger was nothing but a feed trough. And what we learn about that is that even though Jesus is the king of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords, he was not born in a palace. He was not born in a clean hospital like many of us were. He was born in a place where the animals were fed. And today, people love Easter. They love nativity sets. How many of you have a nativity set or more? Yeah, we all do. At the church I formerly served in Tyler, we, we put a large nativity set out there right on Troop Highway, just a very plain one that some of our uh, Carpenters for Christ had built. We had a wealthy lady in the church who said, you know, that's, that's too plain. So she had bought from Germany one of these intricately carved and, and painted uh, nativity sets that were larger than life. I mean, the wise men were like seven feet tall. It was beautiful cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So one year, we put it out there. And the baby Jesus in the, in the manger was beautifully carved Jesus with his hands up. He was three feet long, it, just gorgeous. Well, I'm driving up to church parking lot in my office one morning. And I look and say, well, you know what? Jesus is gone. I walk over there, and sure enough, the manger is empty. And we thought, somebody has stolen Jesus from the manger. I, we called the Tyler PD in the Swiss County Sheriff's Department, and they put a bolo out. Be on the lookout for a three-foot-tall carved baby Jesus. And they never found him. Now, but we got to thinking because in some traditions with nativity sets, some traditions, they don't put the baby in the manger until actually Christmas morning. So we were hoping that somebody would put the baby back there on Christmas morning. It didn't happen. <laughs> So somewhere in East Texas, there's somebody that's either got a baby Jesus in their room just as a joke, or they have a shrine or something. We don't know. But as a result of that, we put up surveillance cameras, so we never had any trouble like that before. 
You know, everybody loves the little baby Jesus in the manger. You know, just something about the Christ child. And, and, and we love Easter, but we all know that in America, Christmas is the most popular holiday. And the problem is some people still only want to relate to the Christ child, the baby Jesus. You know, Will Ferrell's a pretty funny guy. In, in 2006, he starred in a movie of spoof of NASCAR called Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. So here they are. He and his family are seated at the table, and he's going to say grace, and this is exactly what he says. He says, Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. Dear tiny infant Jesus. And, and then his wife, Carly, interrupts him right in the middle of his prayer, and she says, You don't always have to call him a baby. It's a bit odd to pray to a baby. And Ricky Bobby said, Well, look. I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace, and when you say grace, you can say it to the grown-up Jesus or whatever Jesus you want. Now, you might think that's a little sacrilegious, but I think it probably hits a tender nerve for a lot of Americans, because most Americans love the baby Jesus. They only want to relate to the baby Jesus. You know why? Because the baby Jesus makes no no demands on us. They, they can't imagine the baby Jesus calling the religious leaders a bunch of vipers. Can't imagine the baby Jesus running out the money changers in the temple. They just like the nice, quiet little baby Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, folks, Jesus grew up. He grew, and he developed into a young person and, and then into a man. And it's not the Jesus in the manger who saves us. It's the Jesus on the cross who saves us and the empty tomb. The next time we see Jesus after Bethlehem, he was 12 years old, and they had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it was a large group of Jewish pilgrims, and so as they're walking back, I think Joseph must have thought he was with one group, Mary thought he was with another group. After a day, they saw he wasn't around, so they had to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, and they finally found Jesus. You know where he was? He was in the temple, and Mary said, why did you worry us so much? And here's what the 12-year-old Jesus said. And by the way, he was, he was talking to the religious leaders there, and they were amazed by his questions and by his knowledge. And Jesus said this, didn't you know that I would be in, literally it says, in my father's house doing my father's work? Because, you see, Jesus came to do business for God the Father, to spread the truth about who Jesus is. He came to fulfill the wonderful prophecy in Habakkuk 2.14. Here's the prophecy. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. And you know what? That's come true with the Christian faith. Because you find followers of Jesus Christ in every corner of the globe today, thousands and even millions and millions, some say two billion Christians today, will be celebrating the risen Lord. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to teach us what God is like. And what did he teach us? He taught us that our creator is not some angry, mean, spiteful God on the backside of the universe. No, he is a very involved, loving father. That's why Jesus said you can call your creator not just father. Jesus said you can call him Abba. Abba. Those were the first two syllables that would come out of the mouth of a little Jewish baby when he recognized his daddy, Abba. It's our word, dada, papa. He said you can relate to your creator that way. 
And, and Jesus taught us that our Creator cares so much for each one of us that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. And He notices when a sparrow falls from the sky, and He says that you are much more valuable than sparrows. Jesus taught us that you can have a personal relationship with your Creator. So that's, that's the significance of the empty manger. So when you bring out your nativity set next Christmas, just remember, Jesus didn't stay in that manger. Even though a lot of people love the Christ child, we all do, he left that manger to live and to die and to rise again. Here's a second empty thing. Number two, an empty cross. So Jesus could pay for our sins in full. Now, if you have ever sinned, ever had a sinful thought, ever done a sinful deed, you have incurred a moral debt against your Creator. Because if we know one thing about our, our God, He is holy, holy, holy. And He demands a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so we, we all owe a debt that we can't pay. And Jesus paid a debt that we could not pay ourselves. You know, once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and this year it's August, I mean, October 5th. And back when they were, had the temple, the high priest would take two male lambs. He would take one of the male lambs and he would slit its throat. And he would collect the blood into a beautiful basin. And once a year, and only once a year, he would walk toward the Holy of Holies. And he would lift up the corner of this thick, thick curtain. And he would go into the Holy of Holies and would take a branch of hyssop. And he would take that hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat. And he would be in there for six hours. And the Old Testament doesn't say anybody's sins were forgiven. It just said he covered the sins, like it's temporary covering. And then after six hours, he would come back out, lift up the corner of that thick curtain, come back out, and there was that other male lamb. He would place his hands on the head of that lamb, symbolically imputing all the sins of the nation of Israel for the last year. And then an assistant priest would take that lamb way out over into, over into modern-day Jordan today, across, across the Jordan River, and it would be left out there forever. It would never come back. That was a picture of our sins being taken away. The first lamb was the sins of our sins being washed by the blood and our sins being taken away. That's why... In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a picture of that scapegoat, that Lamb going away, taking the sins. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to die for our sins. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Folks, we need to remember the cross is empty. Now, we maybe have some Catholic friends that wear a crucifix that's a cross with Jesus on it. And if you ever go to a Catholic hospital, they have a crucifix on every, in every room. And I'm not criticizing them for that, but I just want you to remember that Jesus is no longer on that cross. He left that cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross and hung there for six hours, exactly the amount of time the high priest was in the Holy of Holies. 
He was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And the Bible says at noon, high noon, it became totally dark. This was not a thunderstorm like you see in the movies or, nor an eclipse. This was God turning off the light, just at, like at creation. It was darkness. He said, let there be light. He said, let there be darkness. Because at that moment, Jesus became our sin. And the Bible says God is such, has such holy eyes that he can't even look upon sin. And did you know, during those six hours, Jesus experienced hell for me and for you so that we don't have to experience hell. What is hell? Well, hell is a place of terrible torment. And Jesus was tortured. He was beaten, had a crown of thorns put upon his head and railroad spikes nailed into his hands and feet, had a, a sword thrust up under his ribcage into his heart. He, he was tortured physically. But the Bible also says that hell is a place of outer darkness. He experienced the darkness of hell. But the worst thing about hell is not the torture. It's not the darkness. It's being separated from God, separated from the presence of God. Now, this is Jesus, who had been one with the Father, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father since the beginning of the beginning. When he's on the cross bearing our sins, he cried out. He didn't say, Daddy, Abba. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther said, mystery of mysteries, God forsaking God. And those moments in which he took our sin, he experienced hell for us, darkness, torture, and separation from God so that you and I don't have to. But toward the end of the time on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, meaning he had passed through that stage of darkness and bearing our sin. And then just before he died, Jesus said one word in Greek, three words in English. He said, tetelestai, it is finished. That's a very powerful word. It's a word that meant paid in full. And that's what happened. Jesus paid our sin debt. You know, if you lived during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem and you went into the marketplace to buy a, a carpet and they said it's 100 shekels and you say, well, I only have 50 shekels. You give him 50, he writes on a piece of paper, you owe me 50 shekels. When you get your 50 shekels, you come in, you pay the 50 shekels, and he would write on that bill of sale, tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So what happened at the cross? You know, one of my very favorite hymns, because it is a hymn, even though it may not be in a hymn book, is the song that we often sing called In Christ Alone, written by Adrian Camp. She's from South Africa. Listen to these words, how powerful they were. They are, how theological correct they are. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Listen to this. Till on that cross as Jesus died. Here it is. This is profound. The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. You know, the judgment of God against sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross. You know, my dad, who's been with the Lord for several decades now, he, he was in the Navy in World War II, fought in the Sicily and in the Philippines. 
when he came out of the service, he went to Louisiana Tech, and he majored in forestry. I was born in Ruston, Louisiana, the last semester my dad was there at Louisiana Tech. And so for many years, my dad was a, was a district forester for International Paper Company in South Alabama, where he supervised about 25,000 acres of pine woodland, harvesting them for poles, pulpwood, reseeding, replanting. But also he was in charge of any fires that broke out. He had a crew of about 20 guys and lots of heavy equipment. And sometimes when I got a little older, when he'd be called out on fire, he'd come in my room and he said, David, hey, there's a fire. You want to go with me to fight it? And man, I'd jump up. Yeah, that's exciting. And I can remember driving out and seeing the, the horizon just lit up by the smoke and the flame. It was usually a simple job of just finding the fire and taking a caterpillar, putting a fire line plow behind it, and just plow around the fire. And so when the fire comes to the plowed up fire line, it stops. But then the, his workers, after they plowed the fire line, they would take these torches that drop fire and they would set a backfire, fighting fire with fire. So they would burn toward the fire. So when the fire came to that burned out portion of the, of the forest floor, uh, it would no longer have anything to burn. So everything was going fine one night until one of the workers came running up to my dad and he said, the, the fire has crowned. I didn't know what he was talking about, but it's a really dry time and the fire had gotten up into the top of the trees and it, there was a roar as it went from tree to tree and it was just going to go right over the fire line. I didn't know what to do. I, I thought you, we need to run from the fire. But my dad said, no, follow me. We ran toward the fire. We ran toward the fire. We jumped over the fire line and we went to that burned out area that by now was cool. And we just got down on our faces. He put his jacket over me. And as the fire passed over, we were safe. You know, the only safe place to be in a fire is where the fire has already burned. And there's a place where the fire of God's judgment has fallen against sin, and that was at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you want to avoid the fire of God's judgment, you and I must stand at the cross because that's where the fire of His judgment has already fallen. Come to the cross today. That's the only place where you find forgiveness for your sins. Well, there's one other empty thing, and of course you anticipated this, an empty tomb. An empty tomb so Jesus can fill us with the hope of heaven. You know, Mary was there early Christmas morning and didn't really think there was going to be a resurrection. She thought somebody had taken the body. To me, it's interesting that the enemies of Jesus paid more attention to his prediction to come back from the dead than the disciples did. Because in Matthew 27, the, the Jewish leaders come to Pilate and they say, we heard that this false guy, this, this liar, he claimed that he would come back from the dead. So can, can you do something about it? So yeah, he sent a few soldiers there, put a Roman seal on there. But you know what? That couldn't stop what was going to happen. Because early that, Chris, early that Easter morning, an angel came and those soldiers fell down like dead men. They were paralyzed with fear. And that angel of the Lord picked up that two-ton two stone, flipped it like a frisbee <laughs> away from the open door. And when Mary got there, she could see the tomb was empty. By the way, folks, you know, the stone was rolled away, not for Jesus to walk out. The stone was rolled away for us to look in and see that it was empty. Nothing could stand in the way of Jesus. He would appear behind the locked doors in his resurrected body. But think about it with me. You know what? If there had not been a resurrection of Jesus Christ, there, then we would never celebrate Christmas. We wouldn't have churches. If there was no resurrection, 
That would mean that Jesus would have died just another obscure Jewish rabbi. But the fact is, he came back from the dead. And this is what Peter says about that in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, that great theologian, Kenny Chesty, he had a song where he says, everybody want to die, but nobody want to go to heaven now. That's a pretty important question. How do you go to heaven when you die? How can you be certain that when you die, you go to heaven? Actually, the Barna Research Group interviewed 5,000 Americans not too long ago, asking them that question. How can you know for certain that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? And they got a variety of answers. They had some people say, I don't even believe in God, don't even believe in heaven. They got a lot of answers that you and I believe to be the right answer. Well, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's your only hope. But the number one answer they got, three times more than the second most popular answer, was this. You, you go to heaven by being good and doing good. That's what most people think. And folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. None of us are ever good enough. I wouldn't trust the best five seconds of my life to get me into heaven. It is only by the grace of God. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, why didn't the Bible say confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that he fed 5,000, believe that he walked on water? Why does it say believe that God raised him from the dead? Because it is the resurrection that is the hinge upon which our faith turns. Jesus is alive and alive forevermore. Now, most evangelical scholars believe that within the last 150 years, the location of the actual empty tomb has been discovered in Jerusalem. It's called the Garden Tomb. Because John tells us that there was a rich man's tomb that had been carved out of the stone. There's a rich man's tomb there. It was in a garden. There, there, there was a garden there. And then about 100 yards away is a rock-faced cliff that looks like a skull, Golgotha, the place where he was crucified, Calvary. Golgotha means skull. And through the years, I've taken over 1,000 people to Israel, and they walk into that tomb, and they do see it's empty. And, you know, I help them into the tomb, put about six in there at a time. They look around. It is empty. And as they step back out, I say, he is risen. They say, he is risen indeed. And then we go to an area up there in the garden tomb. Some of y'all have been there. And we just sing and worship and share communion together. Well, one year we had done this. And we'd all gone into the tomb, and we were sitting there, and we, it was sort of a somber, still kind of moment of worship as we were about to do the Lord's Supper. And there was always several groups, tour groups, in there at the same time. And there was one group from America, because we'd met some of them before. They were from an African-American church in Tennessee. And, uh, well, when they were worshiping the Lord, I mean, they were worshiping the Lord. They weren't quiet about it. And we were up here in this area sitting there, and this group was going through and standing in line waiting to go in the tomb and see it's empty. And I was just about ready to say, you know, this is my body which is broken for you. And the preacher for this group, who had a big booming voice, he walked out of that tomb, and here's exactly what he said. Get ready. He said, I got good news. He ain't in doubt. 
And you could hear it all over that garden. And every group just started cheering and busting out, laughing. And that's right. He, he ain't in there. And that's what we celebrate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not by works, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. You know for certain you're going to heaven when you die. You might remember Nikita Khrushchev. He was Soviet premier in the 60s, and he's the one that came over to the United Nations and took off his shoe and beat it and said, we, we will bury you. Well, by the time Nikita Khrushchev died in 1971, he'd fallen out of favor with the Communist Party, and they didn't want to bury him on Red Square where all the other Soviet premiers were buried. So they started asking around other countries, can we bury Khrushchev in your country? They may have asked Richard Nixon, and Nixon said, no way. They asked Israel, and surprisingly, Prime Minister Golda Meir said, yeah, she said, sure, we'll be glad for you to bury Nikita Khrushchev in Israel, but I must warn you, our nation has the highest resurrection rate of any nation on earth. And the Russians said, never mind. They just buried him by some obscure church somewhere. That's right. Israel has the highest resurrection rate of any nation on the earth because Jesus died. He was buried. And after three days, he came out of the tomb. The manger is empty. So Jesus could fill us with the knowledge of God. The cross is empty. So Jesus could pay for our sin in full. And the tomb is empty so that we can be filled with the hope of heaven. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I'd like to lead you in a sinner's prayer for those of you who are here and watching online. And you don't have to pray this prayer out loud, but you pray it sincerely from your heart. Dear God, I admit I'm a sinner. I can never save myself. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Right now, Jesus, I give you my life. Take control of my life. I will live for you forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.